0: I the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420, WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa.
1: Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Casa and science advisor Matt Moniz, back here at our regular time of 10 p.m. or thereabouts. That's what it should say on the schedule, 10 p.m. or thereabouts, whenever they can get the technology up and running. But we are up and running now on the Fate Radio Network. Just go to spooky SpookySouthCoast.com and you can see the uh, Fate Radio button right there to watch the live stream from the Spooky Studio when you're in for a treat tonight, if you do tune in, because... Well, if you're watching, you can see. We are uh, we are going to talk with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, the authors of Field of Screams, Haunted Tales from the Baseball Diamond, The Locker Room, and Beyond. And uh, I'm going to get on them a little bit about this because in baseball, The Locker Room is called The Clubhouse. So, And I'm sure it's not them. It's, it's the publisher, but there you go. That is the book. Uh, and it is the sequel to Haunted Baseball, which we have them on to discuss When that came out a few years ago, and it's uh, still one of our most popular shows, so naturally when the sequel comes out, we wanted to have them on. So uh, we will talk with Dan and Mickey in just a few minutes, and we're going to talk to them about so many baseball ghost stories, curses, they're all out there. Normally this time of year, though, we're in the middle of a a pennant race here in Boston, and uh, Mickey being a Yankees fan and Dan being a Red Sox fan, we usually get a chance to get into it a little bit, but... I don't think that's going to be the case tonight so uh, we will hopefully at least get a little bit of a chance to rub things in on Mickey but I think he's going to win and plus you know his team won the the championship last year so he'll have some bragging rights I'm sure uh, we have a call on the line here so let's take that real quick before we go to our first break good evening you're on spooky south coast how you doing
2: I'm doing great. How are you guys? Oh we are
1: spectacular. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs>
0: Matt
2: Jeff.
0: How you doing, man? De- hammered. Dude, we're all around the fire. Uh, I got the laptop out. We're listening to Spooky South Coast
2: watching you guys and uh just wanted to see if Matt was still alive actually.
1: He is uh, but uh yeah, we are. I can tell you that Matt Costa has his finger on the dump button and he's gonna be <laughs> leaving it there all night. <laughs>
2: Awesome! We had a we had a ball. We wish you guys were here. You should have done a live show from the backyard.
1: Well, hopefully next year we can pull that off. I mean, is, we're getting better and better with this technology stuff.
2: Yeah, well, you guys are awesome. We love you guys. You well, want to say hi to Sarah?
0: Sure.
1: Hello.
2: Hold on. Oh. There you go. He,
1: well, they're listening on the What's laptop. Up, so just guys. Here on
0: hello, Miss Sarah. Well,
1: hello, Mr. Matt. You made it
0: alive, even
1: and and you're cognizant. You're forming words.
0: It, Roughly, yes.
1: Yeah, we, like like I was telling Jeff, we get the finger on the dump button here. Nice. I'm not That's afraid prob- to pull his microphone away if need be. You're a smart man, Tim. You are. Uh, the rumors aren't true. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you guys are running a constant loop of Jeff's appearance on uh, most terrifying places in America from last night. Of course. Okay. We have to. He, you know, ego needs to be built. Yet they cut Andrew and I out. Well. <laughs> The uh, the MTV style edits there. I don't think they left too much room for a lot of stuff. Boom boom boom. No, you quick got cut, quick cut to cheesy though. Oh yeah. Yeah. So all right. Well, I <laughs> hope that uh, you guys keep partying on out there, and uh, we are, we are there with you in spirit. You are. We are we're, we'll have another beer for you, man. All right. Thank for each one me. of you, maybe okay. a
0: couple. Finish maybe. that wild turkey for me.
1: All right. Tell oh. tell Jeff we said goodbye and we love you. All right. We'll be too, guys. All right. Later. Bye. <laughs> All right. So ends the drunk talk for the night. Any more, Matt? You just hit that button. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we will talk with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, the authors of Field of Screams, Haunted Tales from the Baseball Diamond, The Locker Room, and Beyond. And we'll also talk with you. 508 996 500 996 1420 Those are the numbers if you want to call in at any time during the program. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
2: Man, you up? No. Wake
0: up! I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted.
2: Hey, come on! It's two thirty in the morning.
0: I can't sleep in here, man. Scared.
1: Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the Silent Assassin, Matt Costa, and with the Wild Turkey, Matt Moniz. And uh, we are talking about the paranormal. That's what we talk about each and every Saturday night here on WBSM and also on the Fate Radio network. If you go to SpookySouthCoast.com, you can click on the link for Fate Radio and watch what's going on in the spooky studio as the show happens. You can also find video podcasts through the Fate Radio uh, website as well, and you can get all the... I think it's like the last two months that we've been doing video. So you'll be able to see all those episodes. And uh, of course, you can get all of our archives on spooky south coast or on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. Matt Costa, I spent the whole week yep. editing shows. They're all up there. They're up on Believe the archive. Yeah. Awesome. There we go. So it t- I'm sorry it took me so long yeah. to get them together, but we had some technical issues uh, on one of the episodes and that kind of held up the line. And uh, also we're going to give a little, uh, a little shout-out to our content director, Chris Balzano, who, you know, he had a busy week, so he didn't really get things going, and, and I think he was a little concerned this morning. He was texting me saying, you know, that he didn't get the guest up there on the website and everything. Don't worry about it. You know, how many times did we never get it done? <laughs> so two minute account. Yes, absolutely. And he's like, go ahead and razz me about it on the show, but we don't need to razz him for it. And he's been doing a great job, and we fully appreciate it. Again, go to com every day to read all the different paranormal content up there as well. And I promise, not that I should be plugging my own book in front of our our guests and and their book, but I promise that hopefully by the end of the week we will have the Amazon link to be able to buy Ghosts of the South Coast. So it's coming out there. It's it's released this week, so we'll figure it all out and we'll get it up there. And, of course, Paranite 2010 tickets are available on the website right now. Hurry up. There is only uh, six VIP packages remaining. So if you want to stay at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, after you attend Paranite, then you better get on there now and, and let us know. All right. Well, our guests tonight, you know them, you love them. They were here before to talk about haunted baseball, and we've had them on to talk about uh, Dan's first book, Cape Encounters. Mickey Bradley and Dan Gordon co author of the popular haunted baseball book. Bradley, a lifelong Yankee fan, has been a freelance writer for many years. He lives in Albany, New York. And Gordon, who lives and dies with the Red Sox, is the author of Cape Encounters, contemporary Cape Cod ghost stories. His writings on baseball have appeared in numerous publications. He lives in Providence, Rhode Island. So uh, we welcome Dan and Mickey to the show. Guys, I can't start it off with the usual Red Sox-Yankees rivalry AL East talk here because uh, that ship has pretty much sailed.
2: <laughs> <Well, it's> or <long>. sunk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this, this is Mickey speaking. After uh, after the last couple of days, I'm happy to not talk about that anyway.
1: Yeah, come on, though. In a few weeks, you'll still be able to talk about it, and we won't. So. Yeah.
0: We've got
1: that. Which, uh, as we always say here on 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 Spooky South Coast, we're full supporters of the Red Sox. But if they don't make the postseason and we get to come on every night, every Saturday night in October and do a full show, well, that's okay too.
0: Tim, you've always been a great athletic supporter.
1: I am. I am. I couldn't be an athlete, so I chose to be an athletic supporter.
2: So and then being a jock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, when we talked to you uh, about haunted baseball, you told us then that there were so many stories that you couldn't get them all into one volume and that eventually a second volume would have to happen and that was just with what you gathered in putting that book together. I can only imagine that with the success of haunted baseball, you had more ball players that were willing to open up and share some of their experiences
2: yeah, oh, um you' yeah, both kind of jumping <laughs> um this is dan i i yeah, it was amazing, uh, you know I mean. These stories keep, you know, there are more stories every year. I know you had us on a couple of years ago with a buried jersey incident at Yankee Stadium where the construction worker buried, mm-hmm. Red Sox buried Ortiz jersey. And, um, you know, um, Mickey did a lot of great research on that and found out that there are actually a lot more things buried there. and You know, but just in, in general, players, you know, there are always things going on every year. and So, you know, there's. Uh,
1: but I know too. Part of the problem then uh, was that a lot of the players, you know, didn't didn't want to share things. You know, they would kind of give you a uh, a weird eye when you were asking questions about the ghosts. But I, I mean, Mickey, you you have to deal with a team that's probably you know, the most synonymous with ghosts, uh, with with the Yankees. So, I mean, have you found that they're actually opening up more and they're more willing to talk to you? They see you and they're like, hey, there's the ghost guy. i got a story for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I did come to be known as the ghost guy with a couple of players. I was surprised, uh, you know, to see that some remembered me that way. Yeah, you know, I know what you're talking about. It is an unusual question that we ask people, and you get all kinds of reactions to it. And there's always a danger that when you tell these kinds of stories to someone, like me or Dan, that you don't know, you know, it could come out in a different way, and they could easily get teased by it, uh, about it by, by the fans or by their teammates. But for the most part, I was impressed at how many people were willing to open up and share those stories. And you're right; with the second book, I think it got even even more um, forthcoming. I I can remember being in one locker room where I started asking some questions, and people started talking about a haunted hotel that they stay in a lot. And someone said, "Oh yeah, there was something." on the web that someone printed out that was going around um, the locker room, everyone was reading it and and passing it around to each other, and it turned out to be a chapter from our first book (laughs) on the Vinoy Hotel. Once we had that sort of uh, notoriety behind us, it probably did open up a few doors and open up a few uh, uh, stories.
1: As somebody who deals with professional athletes for a living, uh, I can tell you that they always tell you they don't read the press, they don't read what's written about them, they don't read the clippings, but... That's BS. <laughs> the teams put together packets and give them to them so they know what's going on, and and I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that that story went around more than anything. Uh, the the people that I feel sorry for though are the uh, the people that have had to experience this that aren't baseball players. People who have stayed in these rooms and haven't had the the opportunity to to tell the story because when they tell the story, people look at them like they're crazy. But when a baseball player tells the story, it's oh well, you know, he's a baseball player, so it's got to be true. Well, yeah. Sorry, go,
2: ahead, go, ahead, Dan. go ahead, Dan. Oh no, I mean, yeah, but they they, they get roused a lot. I mean, and we have a whole chapter just on on pranks and kind of players going at each other, just uh, kind of, you know. I mean, they're all it, most mostly it's uh, believe you know players that do believe you know, but they they also you know, there's a lot of you know hazing going on in the game concerning the ghost, So <laughs> yeah. But, yeah.
1: when when you were putting together uh, this sequel book, and you you know you kind of want to touch upon a lot of the same. Organizations that you may have in the first book, and uh, Mickey, did you find that you know with with especially with the Yankees that there was fresh stories to tell aside from the new stadium and everything, but were there other stories that hadn 't yet been uncovered because we 've been talking about the Ghosts of Yankee Stadium for you know fifty plus years now
0: right well though and so we had that in the first book, and I was wondering. Uh, one of the things we we talked about with players in the first book is will the ghost make the transition to the new stadium? Because at that point the stadium was happening but it hadn't been constructed yet. And uh you know, Derek Jeter said that he thought that they would, and Alex Rodriguez, who who was a big believer in um, the Ghost of Yankee Stadium too, he he was sort of hopeful as well. So we did get some new stories about that. Um of course the jersey that Dan was mentioning being buried in the Yankee Stadium, that had some uh, some great <laughs> opportunities for us too. And, yeah, there were other things happening because, you know, these stories are happening all the time, like Dan mentioned before. So one of the new stories in the book um, just happened last year. It has to do with uh, Brett Gardner, who had visited a children's hospital one day. Uh, He was not supposed to play in the game that night. It was a Friday. And he spent his afternoon reading books to sick children. There was one child in particular. Um, an 18-year-old girl who was very ill. She'd had a lot of problems throughout her childhood, but at that point she'd been in the hospital for three months waiting for a heart transplant, which she desperately needed. She was getting weaker all the time. She gave Gardner, she's a big Yankee fan, a a bracelet. Project Hope was the name of the group that had him come in to read. Yellow bracelet um, and told him that every time he wore it, he would hit a home run. (laughs) That's unlikely for most players to hit a home run every single time. Gardner at that point had hit exactly one home run in his entire <laughs> career. Um, but sure enough, that night he didn't end up getting in the game. Johnny Damon got thrown out for uh, arguing with an umpire. Gardner came into the game, and his first time up, he hit uh, a ball that landed in the outfield and started rolling. And he kept running. And he ended up with the first inside-the-park home run of the New East Stadium, the first time Yankee had hit one in, in ten years. And uh, afterwards he talked about that bracelet. But what was most amazing about that story was... At around the same time, while that game was happening, perhaps while he was rounding the bases, um, the girl's family got the phone call they'd been waiting for for three months that her heart had suddenly become available, and the next morning she was in surgery getting her heart. So those kinds of stories um, are happening. I can't say they're happening all the time, but that certainly happened since we did the first book. So with the Yankees and with lots of teams, there were opportunities to find um, stuff that we hadn't mined the first time because these things are just uh, always popping up.
1: Well, you know, now we can officially call the new Yankee Stadium, I guess, almost a a burial ground of sorts because there actually are human remains now at the stadium.
0: Right. Well, you know, in in the first book we talked about um, how often fans try to sprinkle the ashes of loved ones on fields that uh, the departed really enjoyed. So. A lot of um, teams have that happen. Sometimes the teams will condone it. If you ask nicely, the Cubs will let you come into Wrigley Field and even do a little ceremony to sprinkle some ashes onto the field. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, in other places, fans just try to take the tour or in the middle of a game lean over and and sprinkle some ashes. But, yes, in the new Yankee Stadium, um, all kinds of people buried all kinds of stuff there. To curse the Yankees, sometimes to give the Yankees good luck, and um, we know of at least one person who buried part of his father's ashes in Section 205 to try to bring good luck to the team and to give his father a permanent place with the, uh, the team that he loved.
1: And, uh, and Dan, when did you go into Fenway Park and, and bury the ashes of the 2010 season?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the Sox took care of that themselves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I did realize, though, uh, when, when um, I was reading the chapter on Babe Ruth and and you know we all know about the story about Babe Ruth's ghosts and, and obviously being seen at Yankee Stadium and other places along the way. And I'd heard the story about the piano, but I didn't realize how connected the spirit of Babe Ruth was with so many places up in our neck of the woods. Obviously, going back to when he played for the Red Sox, but even beyond when he would return to this area.
2: Yeah, he, especially in in Sudbury and and uh, the surrounding towns. I mean, Babe basically he he settled there. I mean, that's where he. He spent his winter months, and um, you know, starting when you know when he was with the Sox, and then even when he was with the Yankees, um, his, his second wife, um, you know, kind of encouraged him to get out of New York City because he was kind of getting himself into a lot of trouble. And um, but he had, you know, he loved it here. You know, he you know he had a farm um, in Sudbury. Um, he had a um, you know a, a cottage as well, and they used to go fishing. And um, and, and uh, you know that the piano story is very famous. But I mean, he just. He, he went to, frequented a lot of bars and in and places, and, and, you know, I mean, uh, local people, a few of the old-timers still know it, or, or their, you know, or their sons and daughters I'll talk about it still, so it's kind of, stories passed down, but, and of course, you know, we we came upon a, a really interesting ghost story, because they've also, um, you know, of course, uh, f- frequented, as, he was, as was legendary, Bordellos as well, and um, there was a... Um, house in Marlboro that um, turned out, uh, you know, found out that it was actually a home of Bordello and that Babe used to go there. And, you know, uh, the current uh, residents there, uh, you know, feel that he came to visit, actually, you know. And <laughs> So, I mean, there's a lot, there are a lot of uh, um, fun stories uh, connected with him. And we, we got stories up and down the East Coast and um, Baltimore, of course, in the school where he, uh, you know, which he, he was very attached to, you know throughout his life and kind of um where he was raised it was an all kind of an often inch school that um, where he was sent um, and even down in Florida to Saint. Pete, which was kind of his other you know very famous stomping grounds and mm-hmm. lots of stories about the bait down there too well,
1: one thing that I really learned from the book that I, I didn't realize is uh just how many Bordellos there were in the Sudbury and Marlborough areas uh, <laughs> back during the prohibition era i mean I, I'm not surprised to find that out, but still uh you know that's the kind of thing that a lot of towns don't talk about until there's some sort of ghost story linked with them. I mean, we have it right in our town of Wareham. You know, there's there's a story that's associated with a former bordello there, and it, it just it, it seems, yeah, everybody's ears perk up when you say that. But uh, it it seems like uh, the babe really got around up in these uh, up in this neck of the woods.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was great. Uh, you know, researching this chapter, and you know, you could could have kept going forever on it. And, you know, definitely, you know, spoke with a lot of the local historians. And, yeah, you know, it was interesting, you know, especially during the Prohibition era. And that's when, you know, Babe was uh, the peak of his career. Um, You know, so he kind of, you know, inhabited not only uh, a lot of bordellos, but a lot of, um, you know, these moonlighted a lot of bars. There's one right near Fenway, actually, and it's kind of a... It was actually at a. Um, it was a dormitory now called Miles Standish Hall, and it was, he actually had a room there. But there was they, you know, in the basement of that place and many other places. They had, kind of, you know, they had, they 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 would, they would drink, you know, secretively, and you know, it was kind of, uh, you know, yeah, just part of the the culture, but, you know, the way that, you know, they they got around the laws mm-hmm. back then.
1: Well, one one uh, very interesting figure in the book, and we all have heard about Linda Ruth Fassetti and we've, we've seen her on Red Sox broadcast when she's sitting out in the stadium and a lot has been made of her as being the babe's granddaughter and you know what her presence means, whether it be you know, for the Red Sox, against the Red Sox, whatever it is. I mean, she's become a cult figure in this area. And it, it's nice because in that chapter you get a chance to actually realize who she is and how she feels that she's made a connection with the spirit of her grandfather.
2: Yeah, it was just it was fantastic working with her, and, and and you know she she was such a she was so open and honest, and and just kind of talking about you know not only you know the babe you know the ghost stories which she had about her grandfather and the, and kind of the spiritual connection that she thinks she has, but in general just about her you know um, his place in their family and how, what it was like being Babe Ruth's granddaughter, and it was kind of so it was kind of a really a, a, a fun chapter to write and. and yeah, she had a lot of uh, ghost stories. Uh, um, you know, a weird, she calls them kind of like she calls it the Babe Ruth roller coaster ride. Just kind of very strange things ha- that happened at odd times that kind of um, help her out. Um, she, you know, she said anything from you know needing a cab at a certain moment to um, you know um, the I talked about the 2004 uh, playoffs and the uh, um, the division series where the Red Sox um, you know, had to walk off against Anaheim. Ortiz did and. Right before then, she kind of, uh, um, she, she invoked the babe saying that, you know, babe, come get into Ortiz's bat and, you know, end this game. And that's what happened. And then same thing happened, uh, during the games against the Yankees when they came back and the Ortiz had those, you know, walk-off hits. Um, um, she, so she claimed it on three separate occasions. Now she, she doesn't claim that, you know, she doesn't want to take responsibility for it. You know, she thinks it was RT you know she says uh you know it was RTs and this and that but you know, she just thinks it's really odd that you know the timing of that and her her invoking you know her grandfather at that at that moment at those moments
1: well it would have been nice if she could have invoked uh, the babe to get into bill buckner's glove maybe <laughs> yeah, it kept yeah. him out of uh bucky dents bat
2: <laughs> exactly uh, you know yeah <laughs> yeah
1: Well, I mean, we know the stories of Fenway. We know the. the, you've talked with us about the ghost stories of Fenway. We read about them in Haunted Baseball. And everybody knows about the ghosts of Yankee Stadium. Uh, One stadium that I had never heard any stories uh, associated with, and it was just a fascinating read, was uh, Tiger Stadium, the old Tiger Stadium, actually being what sounds like it's pretty severely haunted.
0: Yeah, that was one of the advantages of of doing a second book, because when we were doing the first, as you mentioned, we got – Lots of stories on lots of places, lots of teams covered. And it was always sort of um, a disappointment to me that uh, we never got anything on Tiger Stadium. We had asked. We interviewed a bunch of Tigers. And um, we just never quite got that nugget that really um, could blossom into a chapter. But this time we did. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of stories about the stadium. For for people who don't remember, the stadium, a very old stadium, in fact, it went into use the exact same day that uh, Fenway did in 1912. But it it played its last game at the end of the 1999 season. And for almost 10 years after that, uh, the city of Detroit was trying to decide what to do with the place. It was very historic and very beautiful and much loved, and people thought we must find some kind of way to repurpose it. No one really wanted to tear it down, but the city was always threatening to tear it down. And um, in the meantime, it was just sort of uh, falling into disrepair. And the first things that we started to hear were from security guards who worked the night shift there. They had stories of strange orbs that they would encounter while doing uh, their rounds. People had uh, bizarre things happen to them while in the security office late at night. Um, my favorite story there was a guy who said that he was uh, watching TV and he suddenly looked down at his arm and saw scratches being etched into the skin of his arm with no explanation for why that was happening or what was causing it. So those kinds of things were happening. And then you started hearing other stories about people driving by the park and hearing the sound of a game going on late at night. People said they could sometimes see um, they, uh, Ty Cobb and other players of that era sort of rounding the bases. Um, we started hearing all kinds of stories like that, which really um, gave you know a great historic life to the old ballpark. Now, the park has since been torn down, and um, the, the new park that the team used, Comerica Park, which has been in existence, since the 2000 season, has started to accrue some ghost stories of its own. Those are mentioned in the book as well. But some of them are said to be Ty Cobb, and some of them are said to be the results of, um, you know, some some accidents and some folks who, um, who died at the site during the construction of the building and then afterwards, too.
1: Well, I think now, too, uh, we're going to hear stories about Ernie Harwell, you know, his uh, voice being heard announcing in the stadium as well. Yeah,
0: and Ernie Harwell is one of the people that uh, I had the chance to talk to for that chapter. Um, just a great opportunity to really happened to Tiger's history when you think about someone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's exactly the kind of person that you expect to start hearing stories about because so many of these stories really are ways in which um, great, great players and other people associated with the team are honored and remembered after they've died. So some people believe very literally, of course, in, in these ghost stories. Other people that I talk to all the time who like the books will say, I'm not sure that I believe literally in the ghosts, but I love these kinds of stories as a way to keep the history and tradition of the game present.
1: Absolutely, and the books give you a great inside look at how Major League Baseball works and what these players are like, what the managers are like, the front office people. So you really get an idea of who the people are that make the sport possible. Uh, one, one thing that I think is interesting, and we've talked here on the, the show numerous times about exactly what the nature of a ghost is. If it's not necessarily the... Uh, soul of a person who has passed away but sometimes it can be created by the the memories the desires the wants of the people who are living and i think that when you have these iconic figures that are in these parks then when people go there and they keep remembering them and they keep you know giving out positive signs toward their energies then it's possible to almost recreate them in these parks and i think that might be part of what's happening
0: that's certainly one of the things that we hear a lot i mean in in talking to some of the um ghost hunter folks that I've interviewed in the course of of doing these these books, uh, they talk about that kind of thing. We were just talking about Tiger Stadium, and I had a chance to walk through there with a ghost hunter, and he said it made perfect sense that a place like that would be haunted or or have spirits because the energy of people is what accumulates in a place, and, and the place that they had a lot of strong emotional attachments to or any kind of emotional response, is the place that uh, their spirit is apt to reside in? Afterwards, during the first book, we we um, had you know several chapters actually that had to do with the Cubs, but one talked about Wrigley Field in particular. He were just talking about Ernie Harwell, but after uh, Harry Carey died, their beloved announcer, they actually brought in some ghost tenants because the team was doing very well, and the rumor had started that he was somehow in the park helping the team out. And the, um, the investigators went first to his announcing booth. They said they didn't find anything there. They started going around the park, and they were on the, the pitcher's mound, didn't quite see anything there. When they got to the bleachers, which is a well-known place of a lot of excitement in Wrigley Field, they started registering all kinds of energy spikes, they said. And, again, the same reason that you were just saying, it seemed to make sense to them because that's where people have a lot of focus, a lot of energy, and that stays uh, be- beyond their physical presence.
1: So there's no truth to the rumors in that the Harry Carey ghost sightings were really just Will Ferrell running around saying, I love hot
0: dogs. That will be, you have to read uh, you know, a third book for that. That will okay. all be revealed there. Uh,
1: well, speaking of Wrigley Stadium, I mean, I, obviously they have the Billy Goat curse happening there, and it uh, huh, doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. Uh, has they made any new attempts to try and get rid of that curse?
0: People are always trying to get rid of that curse. Fans are doing things, the team sometimes does, uh, does things as well. Um, probably one of the most notorious efforts that they've had in the last few years was um, a priest that was brought in. When they made the postseason in 2008, the, um, the team officially brought in a priest in a very quiet way. They didn't want any kind of media attached to this, who um, rumor had it that he was brought in to, to conduct an exorcism on the field. He insists that that's not the case. He was brought in merely to bless the field, but as part of his blessing, they say uh, some kind of incantation about any negative uh, spirits or energies leaving the place behind. He started blessing the dugout um, in the afternoon before the game started, and some press was there and caught it and started, um, you know, really running with the story a little bit. The team got a little skittish about it and asked him not to bless the rest of the field. So there's videotape that was shown on ESPN of um, a priest in robes, walking around with holy water and sprinkling it in the dugout. And Crane Kenny, the um, president of the Cubs, was with him and helping out in that. Um, but they really disavowed it pretty quick afterwards.
1: Well, they've tried this before. I remember they tried to do it at Fenway Park, but uh, it didn't work because the priest that they got to conduct the exorcism was not a real priest. It was Father Guido Sarducci. So, <laughs> You know, if uh, had he been ordained by the Catholic Church, there might have been a chance. I got the perfect way to, to solve this whole curse of the billy goat. It would just involve losing about a half a stadium's uh, profits for one day. Have everybody that goes to the game bring a goat with them.
0: Well, they've, they've certainly tried bringing goats into the field before. They've, um, in fact, the, the man who put the original curse on the team, Billy Goat Sianis, was his nickname was Billy Goat, um, his nephew still sort of continues that tradition today. He runs the tavern. Uh, a series of taverns there are now. And he has brought a goat to the game on several occasions. He claims that he was turned away um, the night of the Steve Bartman game, uh, that oh. he was there with a the goat and they didn't let him in, and that's why the whole Bartman incident happened. Uh, but he's been, there, he's been there invited and allowed to come in on several occasions, usually before... Um, postseason games, they'll bring a goat in and parade him around the field, but it hasn't quite had the <laughs> desired effect yet. Now, in the last couple of years also, some uh, fans who maybe have a little bit too much uh, energy for this have um, left the, like a, a, a goat's head um, and I think some kind of disembodied goat bowels or something on the statue of Harry Carey just outside the park prior to the start of the season. Obviously, that's nothing that the team wants anything to do with. And that's no one wants creepy to do with. <laughs>
1: Well, hey, Billy Goats in the stadium, not really so good for the curse, but great fertilizer for the infield. There you go. All right, well, why don't we take a break? Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little about, about uh, the Angels uh, Stadium in Anaheim because this is a, a spirit that we deal with a lot here uh, on the south coast of Massachusetts. That's Native American spirit. So we'll take a break. When we come back, more about Haunted Baseball's sequel, Field of Screams, with Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley when we come back here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back.
1: Don't you're the producer, don't listen to me. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, who I saw the picture of you online uh, playing that gig out in California last night. You saw that?
2: I, yeah. Yeah. That.
1: I saw that, yeah. <laughs> I always thought that that ponytail was an add-on. So, uh, And also, science advisor Matt Moniz is here, although he's not in any state to advise anybody about any science, Woo-hoo! except the fermentation of beer. All right, well, we are talking with uh, Mickey Bradley and Dan Gordon, the authors of Field of Screams, Haunted Tales from the Baseball Diamond, the Locker Room. And beyond. And, and guys, I had mentioned before the break uh, a- uh, Angel Stadium in Anaheim, and some of the ghost stories that are coming out of this are, are downright creepy. It's, it sounds like there's a, a real Native American presence there.
2: Yeah, we had a, a we, you know, in, in our first book, we covered an injury curse for the, in the stadium that long, players have long thought that, you know, the, uh, they believe that the ballpark was built over a Native American burial ground, and they believe that that was causing some. Um, both injuries, fatalities, um, you know, and, and the Angels have had a long, uh, tragic history. Uh, players are being shot, um, car accidents, and just a higher amount of, of fatalities than other teams. And, um, But also just, uh, uh, you know, but it, after they won in 0 that kind of went away. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there have been ghost stories, too. And, and um, uh, we, we talked to uh, some stadium workers that had stories uh, First came out, Troy Troy Percival actually kind of led us to that. He he tipped us on these stories, and then we we went in and started talking to We talked to a clubby who, a long-time clubby, who who talked about a boombox sliding uh, off of a shelf before his eyes um, and also one uh, playing, you know, blasting music coming on by itself. Uh, But some of the oddest stories actually came from a former bat boy, a, a long-time bat boy. You know, he reported, like, hearing... You know, odd, odd noises, a sensation of being watched, apparitions of players, uh, apparitions of workers, um, apparitions of a former coach, Jimmy Reese, who was a beloved coach who was with the Angels uh, for in different capacities for over six decades. Um, and um, even some of the weirdest stories he had were, you know, uh, apparitions coming down the hallway and uh, following him. and, and Faces on the wall, and he described them kind of as Native American faces. And he kind of thought, because of Native Americans, the way they he kind of the way they're buried. And we we talk about this too in our, our chapter on Cooperstown, um, which I can touch on later. But it's basically, you know, buried in a crouching position, and he he kind of uh, kind of could almost pick that up as he was walking through the corridor So some really bizarre tales from that ballpark.
1: Well, and uh, of course they do have a few guardian angels there as well. I mean. Of course, uh, Gene Autry, who is, you know, nobody, no owner loved the team probably more than he loved uh, he loved the Angels. And, and now uh, Nick Adenhart you know, a lot of the players I know, they feel he's watching over them as well.
2: Yeah, that was a really nice. Uh, we wrote about that as well and, and got some nice uh, comments from players. On, you know, that they kind of thought, you know, in many ways that Adenhart was watching over them after you know, he had died in a car accident in April, uh, tragically hit by a, a drunk driver. Um um, after his first start, and kind of a very promising young pitcher, and you know, guys just kind of they carried his jersey to different, uh, uh, you know, on the road, and you know, a lot of that happens a lot with uh, you know when a teammate dies, but they kind of actually put him in the dugout and they touched his jersey all the time, and there was a, a mural on the outfield wall, and, and players always touched it before the game and kind of acknowledged him, and it, in the, you know, they, they doused his jersey with champagne when they clinched the uh, when they clinched the pennant, and um, and it, went, it was kind of an eerie incident uh, during, when uh, Anaheim uh, defeated the Sox last year um, knocked them out of the playoffs uh, um, it was at Fenway and uh, a gate opened up by itself and uh, when Dodgers uh, I mean when L.A. Times writer kind of noted the eeriness of that so it was just kind of but it was a very nice story it's kind of just kind of again kind of a nice way to write about the inner workings of the game and kind of how players honor past players and You know, kind of that that bond, special bond Mm -hmm. uh, that goes on in baseball.
1: All right, well, we are coming up on the end of this hour. We're going to take a break for the news, and then when we come back on the second hour, we'll talk more about Field of Screams, Haunted Tales from the Baseball Diamond the Locker Room and Beyond. If you want to get the book, you can go to fieldofscreamsonline.com. It's also available through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Anywhere where you buy books online, you can find this book. And while you're at it, pick up Haunted Baseball as well, so you can get all the stories from the first go-around as well. Uh, we're going to take a, a brief break for the news. When we come back, we'll talk more about Paranight 2010. And uh, by request, I'll give some more information about Ghosts of the South Coast. But uh, tonight, it's all about Dan and Mickey and Field the Scream. So we'll be right back with more coming up after the news. And who knows, maybe we'll even have some interesting baseball related music to play, against my better judgment. We'll be back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Spooky South Coast is back. It's Saturday night. I have no date. A two-liter bottle of Shasta and my all-Rush mixtape. Let's rock. I
2: can smell your I'm not afraid. You will. <laughs>
1: Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz. And we'd like to thank everybody that tunes in and watches on Fate Radio, including Eric Lavoie, who's watching for the first time on Fate Radio. Just go to Fatemag.com fateradio Fate Radio, or you can just click on the link on SpookySouthCoast.com. That's the easiest way to get there. You can join in with us in the chat room there. The, some of the usual guys are in there and uh, we always have fun in the chat room during the program and also if uh, if you are a fate radio viewer and you want to go back and watch some past shows just uh, go through the fate radio archives there and you'll see some of our past shows uh, and some of the other great programming that they have on fate radio as well i know that uh you know sometimes when you're you're sitting home alone especially now that it's like halloween getting to be halloween season you know you you want a little good paranormal programming and Fate Radio always has something fresh and new for you to check out, so whether it be audio-only shows or or shows with video, there's plenty to keep you occupied in that regard. But you know what else you can do? You can go out on October 20th to Paranite 2010 at the Water Street Cafe in Fall River. Tickets to the event are just $45 per person, located just across from Historic Battleship Cove. The Water Street Cafe was originally a print shop when it was built back in 1844, and it's more than 150 years of history. The cafe has accumulated more than its share of ghosts. And so we're going to have a great event there. We're going to have a cocktail hour at the beginning with live entertainment. There's a rumor that the the world debut of the van, band EVP will be that night. They're going to play a two-song set prior to the uh, dinner buffet that's going to be happening. So, yeah, you do. You get a buffet dinner with us. I mean, when was the last time you went out and you got three great paranormal lectures and a buffet dinner for under 50 bucks? So we're going to have Jeff Belanger, who you've seen on the most terrifying places in America, or uh, or America's most terrifying place. I don't remember what it was. Uh, He'll be there talking about legend tripping. Uh, We're going to have Robert Murch, the world's foremost Ouija board historian and collector, and he's going to have some of his talking boards with him as well. And uh, then I'm going to give a little talk on the Ghosts of the South Coast as well. And uh, numerous other paranormal personalities are going to be in attendance, different researchers, investigators, people that if you have questions about the paranormal, this is the perfect networking opportunity to learn. Maybe you want to join a group. Maybe you want to have an investigation done of your house. These, this is the time to come out and talk to these guys. $45 a ticket again. You can't beat that price just for dinner alone. I mean, we, we've we eaten at the Water Street Cafe. The food is great. And uh, you can just go to SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the Paranite 2010 banner right at the top of the page and purchase your tickets through PayPal. Uh, but if you want to purchase the VIP package, which includes the night stay at Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast, uh, then please email me, Tim at spookysouthcoast.com, so we can make the arrangements for that. I know that uh, there's uh, the Lizzie and Emma suite is taken up for the night, and the chimney room, the uh, Ho- Jose and Olton room on the third floor are taken up, but every other room is open. That includes the Morse room where Mrs. Borden was killed, so that is open right now. If you want to be able to get in on that. Uh, the prices for that are, are just amazing. I mean, $265 to stay on the third floor. That includes lodging for two and tickets for two to the event, and $315 for second-floor rooms. So if you would like to get involved in the VIP packages, again, email me, Tim, at SpookySouthCoast.com. But everybody else, just go to PayPal. You can buy your tickets there. If for some reason you can't use PayPal, uh, either give shoot me an email or give me a call here at the studio or come by in the next few weeks and uh, we'll sell your tickets that way as well. So we just want to make sure that everybody that wants to go to this event has a chance to get there. I think we might even uh, have Matt Costa drive a shuttle bus. Huh. For people that don't drive, no, you're not going to drive a shuttle. You're not, you sure. don't have the Why license. Do so you have the endorsement on your license? Uh, no, but
2: and cool. hasn't stopped us before. That's true.
1: <laughs> that is true. And uh, if you do want to pick up the new book that I uh, just have released from the History Press, Ghost of the South Coast, it will be available uh, this week, and it, it, it's in there warehouse it ships out this week uh the specialty shops and the metaphysical shops should have them uh, in the next week or so followed uh, another week after that maybe before it hits like borders and barnes and noble and those places but i can tell you that october 13th at 7 p.m i'll be doing a book signing at baker books in dartmouth Uh, and then on october 24th i'll be doing something at the uh, haunted bog at the tyhona village market in wareham and on october 30th They'll be assigning at the old company store in Wareham. That's uh, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. as part of an all-day event they're having there. So, you know, a few chances to get out there. There'll be more up there. We're putting them all up on a site we're making that will be linked up through SpookySouthCoast.com. We we could probably go live with that by next weekend, Matt, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. We can go live with it now. I mean, if we have to. Well,
2: let's take it. Take some links down that are not appropriate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that. And every time I forward it to the publisher to show them the progress that we've made on the site, <laughs> I'm sure they click on those links too. So
2: they're hilarious, but
1: they are. But yeah, they're not. They're not really good for promoting the book. But again, goes to the south coast, 19.99 from the History Press. So uh, it is available. And if you do buy it anywhere else, and you can't make it to any of the signings, you know where to find me every Saturday night. I'll be glad to sign it for you. So. All right, that's enough plugging of my own book. And now let's get back to the guys who are actually good at this, the guys who have written not one but two books on the idea of baseball and its ghosts, and the new one is called Field of Screams, Haunted Tales from Baseball Diamond, The Locker Room, and Beyond. Guys, I know that I don't have to blame you for this. I know that I have to blame the the publisher, but you guys know that its they they don't call it The Locker Room in baseball.
2: Well, they... Do, I mean, yeah, I mean, they call it the clubhouse, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's a thrown around, yeah, it's just not as common, yeah, it's kind of, yeah.
1: Yeah, but, I okay. mean, you know, it sounds we, it, it sounds better to the, to the casual, you know, non-hardcore baseball fan. When you say locker room, that's how they know they're really getting inside. You say clubhouse, they're like, yeah, I don't really know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> well, this, the book is being marketed toward regular people who are not necessarily, uh, you know, professional baseball players, so.
1: But p- people who are big-time baseball fans and, and really diehard baseball fans are going to love all the stories that come out of this book. And I, I know that, you know, out of all the sports, I'd say baseball is probably like third on the list of what I follow. I write about football. I write about basketball. Those are my passions. But I do enjoy the history of baseball more than I do the modern game. I You know, the modern game has been kind of ruined the last few years with all the steroid scandals and all the other stuff that's been going on. So it's what's good about this book is it takes you back to some of the simpler times and some of the, I, I almost want to say, the better heroes uh, of the bygone era. And, uh, of course, one of those being Roberto Clemente, who is a hero not only as a baseball player but as a human being. Because uh, not, not, not a lot of people realize, but when he lost his life, he was actually uh, on a relief mission to help people back in his native Puerto Rico, right?
2: Yeah, actually, yeah, he was... Uh... Oh, they, he is actually helping on, on his way to Nicaragua from Puerto Rico. Yeah, there was a, a huge, earth, massive earthquake in 1972, and you know, so many people died, and it was, you know, to this day there are still ruins standing from that. You know, that haven't been, you know, buildings that are still, you know, um, you know, remnants. Um, and yeah, he he was on his way with that. You know, he he kind of he found out that Somoza, the dictator in Nicaragua, was. Uh, wasn't letting the you know was basically taking all the relief goods that he was sending and wasn't getting to the people, and so he wanted to go there himself and, and make sure that it got distributed. And, and the plane was uh, had some problems with the engine. It was you know and it just basically crashed. And yeah, there've been ghost stories connected with that crash. And um, yeah, we have other ghost stories too in the book on on Clemente.
1: And it seems like many of the Puerto Rican players that are in Major League Baseball today, they feel a special connection with the spirit of Roberto Clemente.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and guys, I mean, like Carlos Delgado, you know, future Hall of Famers, Carlos Beltran, you know, different guys, you know, they were. And you know, I mean, we even, you know, I, I during the research, I went to, uh, I was in, in the World Baseball at the World Baseball Classic interviewing players, and I remember attending a Puerto Rico game, and like so many people had signs up, like saying, you know. Clemente lives. I mean, and this is—he uh, died in '72, and it's, so it's 38 years later, and people still remember. And kids still, you know, argue over who's going to get number his uniform number 21, you know, in, in little league and things like that. So it's still an honor to wear, you know, to wear that number, and to you know, he's still very well remembered, and people are very proud of him. And yeah,
0: well, I... I mean, baseball is really honored um, his his good service. There's a Roberto Clemente Award that is given to players who show exemplary community of service. So, yeah, players like that get, I mean, his, his fame is sort of extends beyond the game in a certain way because he's, he's just known as someone who was really uh, about more than just what happened on the field.
1: Well, also, too, it seems like uh, many of the Pirates players of today, uh, you know, they, they feel his presence around them all the time, and some of them welcome it and some of them are a little freaked out by it, but it, it seems like he's watching over his team.
2: Yeah, that was, a, you know, it was a really fun chapter that w- we wrote on, on Pirate City, which is been a long-time home of the uh, spring training home for the Pirates and, and of, of their Florida teams, um, and, you know, and it's in Bradenton, Florida, and um, basically, you know, they had a dormitory there for the longest time, and, you know, when it was first built, the dormitory, was, I mean, when the complex was first built, or... Um, Clemente wanted to stay there, even though he was a veteran and he could have stayed in a hotel. So he was there, basically there, helping out uh, younger players on the team and younger guys, um, because that was kind of his, you know, who he was. You know. And and he he always stayed in the dormitory overlooking the batting cages. I believe it was room number two thirty two. And after he died, um, that room became first first no one would stay in it, but then people started staying in it, and you know there there were. Some players were kind of spooked staying there. Um, some players saw ghosts while staying there, and apparitions, different things. Uh, not always, a, you know. Mostly, a, actually, not necessarily seeing Clemente, but seeing other apparitions, but kind of connecting with Clemente, and you know, other weird things. I mean, players, Latin players, would often like to, like to photograph the room. Um, some players requested the room. Some refused to stay. The Ramos Romero is huge slugger with the Cubs. You know. Um, you know, he, he enjoyed staying in that room. But other guys were kind of, you know, really uh, – Bronson Arroyo uh, told us that when he was there, you know, there was a painting that you – know, it was painted while Clemente was alive of him, and it was on, on the wall, and he, he thought the eyes of the painting would follow him while he was, you know, <laughs> walking around the room. So he was kind of pretty spooked. Um, so, yeah, it really depends on the player. But, you know, the those stories are very uh, famous in baseball, and, you know, guys – you know, that room is, is, was legendary.
1: Well, one of the players that you interviewed about some of the spirits at Pirate City was, uh, was Barry Bonds. And w- what was the experience like trying to get Barry Bonds to talk on the record for this?
0: <laughs> he, was, um, he was an interesting person to talk to, that's for sure. <laughs> um, for the most part, he was happy to talk about um, what it was like to be at Pirate City. You know, that gets back to his days when he was first coming up himself. And he had a lot to say just about that uh, that complex. It's sort of set far in. It's um, from from the road. It's behind some orange groves. It's um, you know back in the days when he was there, it was relatively primitive compared to the place that uh, players stay in today. There was no television, or I think there was just a television in in one main room. There were four guys to a room, and nothing like that today at most of these uh, spring training complexes. So. He had some stories, some fun stories just about, you know, what it was like to be there. He used to sneak out. He said, um, you know, there was an 11 o'clock curfew, and he would sort of sneak out to try to sample whatever nightlife he could find and then sneak back in at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning. He said he never got caught doing that. Um, But he also, of course, had good things to say about, uh, you know, that that history of Clemente and what he meant to the team, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know... One of the great pleasures of researching a book like this is is that Dan and I got to talk to so many colorful figures in the game, (laughs) including um, major superstars like like Barry Bonds and a lot of uh, old-timers, you know, Al Kaline and Willie Mays and folks like that. Um, So hearing their stories, whatever they were talking about, was always uh, a pleasure.
1: And and you got a lot of inside stories that I think other, like if a reporter walked up and started asking some of these questions, the player would dismiss them and and uh, and wouldn't want to talk about it, but it seems like you guys really get in on the inside story of things. Maybe because you're not sports writers, and because you're the quote-unquote ghost guys, they know that they can tell you some things that you know they might not share with the, the beat writers. And uh, of course, one of that is and, and I got to ask you this, Mickey, knowing that you're a Yankee fan, did you ever wear the good luck thong?
0: <laughs> not, <laughs> not on your head. Not even on your head. I did not wear it, but I did uh, see it firsthand. Um, you're talking about Jason Giambi's, um, what, it's sort of a gold lame, yeah. more leopard print song that um, somehow became a good luck charm for him and for his teammates. He started wearing it actually when he was with the uh, A's, but he brought it over to New York when he was with the Yankees. And, yeah, the story goes that um, when a, a player is in a slump, um, Putting on that song is a magic cure. You have to be really, really in a slump. It can't just be, you know, you've had an 0 for 12 or something like that. Um, but he insists that no one who has worn it has ever not gotten a hit the day that they wore it. And, uh, yeah, when I asked him about it, it wasn't in the, I'm sorry, in the clubhouse. I was almost going to say locker room. It was <laughs> in the clubhouse. And uh, to tell you the truth, I didn't initially ask him specifically about it. I asked him if he had any kind of good luck charms that he believed in or wore or anything like that. And he initially told me about a necklace that he wears that was made for him by the daughter of the um, conditioning coach, I think, for the Oakland A's. And he's worn it every single game he's ever played as a professional. He's had it restrung several times, and it's a wonderful story about this child making it for him. But he didn't mention anything about the, <laughs> the thong, and eventually I did ask uh, asked him specifically about it. And he said, oh, yeah, it's right here. And he pulled it out of his uh, out of his locker. It had his number on it, 25. And, uh, yeah, he, he talked about how uh, how magical it is.
1: You know, considering uh, Johnny Damon's uh, penchant for walking around the, the clubhouse buck naked, I'd almost want him to be in a slump so that at least he would wear the thong and be somewhat covered up.
0: Damon has worn it at least twice and gotten hit when he was in serious slumps. Yeah, he claimed that. You know, wearing it, he would
2: uh, forget about, you know, what's going on in, in the game and just, just be thinking about the thong and how uncomfortable it is. <laughs> and <that's, laughs>
1: Just hope that the elastic waistband and the belt hold up so that the fans don't see it. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask about, about the Yankees, uh, you know, they recently lost George Steinbrenner, and I was wondering if you'd heard any stories about his spirit already being associated somehow with the team.
0: I have not heard any of that yet, but I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if you start to hear it soon. He he died in July. He died, um, I think, just a couple of days after um, Bob Shepard died, mm-hmm. who was a longtime announcer for for uh, the club. And it would be, you know, very typical of the kinds of stories that we hear that in the next few months. Um, you especially if they make it into the postseason, and especially if they start to have some sort of remarkable comebacks. Those are the kinds of things that get people talking about what could be responsible for these highly unusual, um, you know, on-field heroics. Steinbrenner just had a monument um, unveiled last week to him in Monument Park. Um, That's something that's only done for posthumous um, players or or, um, people strongly associated with the team. So it's only the sixth monument that the Yankees have done. And that, too, is the kind of thing that just sort of starts to solidify the notion of, an ongoing presence, or a spirit, or an energy that's going to stay in that park.
2: Yeah, it was interesting to see David Wells, uh, you know, touching his—I don't know if you saw that—but uh, touching his monument right, you know, during that ceremony, kind of just like they touched, they always touch Babe Ruth's monument, and I believe Wells, you know, had that tradition. Along with—I remember Clemens did too. Yeah,
0: Clemens did too. Yeah.
1: Well. I think that uh, when his spirit is experienced at Yankee Stadium, you'll, you'll probably have investigators going in there at some point, capturing EVPs of him yelling at Billy Martin.
0: <laughs> you have to you have to find some way for a spirit to be firing people. I don't know if that can happen.
2: Interestingly, uh, you know the uh, Steinbrenner um, state, Stadium down in uh, in Tampa, where you know he had offices, and you know we have a story in, our, in Field of Screams about that being haunted uh you know those offices being haunted so you know who knows if that's going to eventually be attributed to steinbrenner
1: well i guess you you calm down a little bit in the afterlife they say you know that when you you realize that there's more than just this mortal life you're, you're enlightened and you're you're a better spirit because of it so let's hope that george goes through that kind of transition as well all right well why don't we take a break here uh when we come back I want to talk about another new tradition, a new old tradition with the Red Sox, and it's the idea of these superstitions, you know, every team seems to have their different superstitions, and with the Red Sox it's a song. So we'll talk about Tessie and uh, when we come back we'll play the original version. Uh, but Matt, why don't you lead us out into commercial with the uh, the Dropkick Murphys version and for we'll discuss this a little bit later on, but there's a paranormal connection with the Dropkick Murphys version of Tessie. We'll get into all that. I'm not even sure if the guys know. They probably do. They know everything about haunted baseball. So stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. You can call in if you'd like, one 996 1420 or 508-996-0500 if you're local. And you can also join in the chat room as well. Just go to SpookySouthCoast.com and click on the Fate Radio link, and you can join us there and watch the show as it streams. All right, so we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
0: Tessie is the royal
1: root rally cry. Tessie is the tune they always sung. Tessie echoed April through October nights after serenade and
0: starred the neat and young. Tessie is a maiden with a sparkling eye. Tessie is a maiden with a love. She doesn't know the meaning of her side. She's got a On the line, Tessie always carried them away up the road from the bank. This is the only, 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 sung by the Queen Columbia Records. Here she is, a maiden with a sparkling eye. Here she is, a maiden with a laugh. Pessie doesn't know the meaning of the sign, Pessie's lots of fun and full of jazz. But sometimes we have a little quarrel we do, Pessie always turns her head away. Then it's up to me to do as all boys do, so I take a hand in mine and say, Pessie, you make me feel so badly, why don't you turn around? Cassie, you know I love you, Matty. Made my heart wave about a power. Don't blame me if I ever got you, you know. I wouldn't live
1: without you, Cassie. Alright, welcome back to Spooky South Coast, Tim Wisebird here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Monys. And we are talking about Field of Screams, Haunted Tales from the Baseball Diamond, The Locker Room and Beyond, the new book by Mickey Bradley and Dan Gordon. You can get it at fieldofscreamsonline.com as well as amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com and wherever else you buy books online. And also, of course, it's in all the bookstores. And uh, Dan, I know that in this area you probably have a lot of signings happening in the month of October. Uh, anything that you can think of off the top of your head?
2: Uh, yeah, tomorrow I'll be in uh, Cumberland uh, at uh, Phantom Farms. Um, that's uh, from 12 to 3. Um, yeah, October 28th at uh, Barnes & Noble in, in Warwick, Rhode Island. i will be there. Um, and we're still setting some other stuff up, too.
1: Well, uh, keep Wednesday, October 20th open if you can.
2: Oh, okay, sure.
1: We'd love to have you at Paranite 2010 to sign copies of the books for people.
2: Oh, that would be cool. Yeah.
1: All right. And plus, I don't think we've never had the chance to meet face-to-face, you and I.
2: I know. We always, like, uh, always, we don't, <laughs> <Plus> <laughs> it's like, yeah, we're in the no, same building, but nice. never at the same time. <laughs>
1: So we'll we'll definitely make sure that we alleviate that situation because we'll both be out out and about signing books and doing yeah. different things. Yeah, so.
2: congratulations on your book. Thank right. you,
1: thank you. Well, wait till you read it before you congratulate me. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but uh, we Perfect. did play we played the song Tessie, uh, both versions of it, and uh, it's interesting because there's a lot of facts that you point out about the song in the book. And uh, Dan, I'll ask you this: being the Red Sox fan, it it seemed like for a long time it was a good luck charm for the team and then it just fell by the wayside
2: yeah exactly yeah it was like uh... you know it kind of you know it evolved back in the era when like fans were really um, you know they weren't driven by like you know announcers and scoreboards and telling them what to program and then what to sing and everything but it was kind of more you know it was, they used to sing you know fans used to invent songs and there was a group of fans called the royal rooters and they uh... basically uh, you know Came up with a song during the 1903, the first very first World Series, the 03 World Series, and um, it uh, you know they sang it both at home and on the road, and it really you know started driving the Pirates crazy. And Onus Wagner, um, legendary Pirate, uh, you know Hall of Famer, you know claimed that you know years later that that kind of affected the outcome. And many other you know, and the Red Sox kind uh, of, it took that series. They won over the span that they used, they they sang that from 1903 to 1918. The Sox won. Five world series um they were 25 and 7 had a 25 and 7 win-loss record um in in the world series games um and then it, it kind of when the royal readers uh, i'm sorry the royal readers um faded out so did the, the song and just disappeared and, and um i over the years uh, a few fans kind of like speculated well maybe that if they put, brought the song back the Sox might start winning you know mm-hmm. like and um but nobody really did. One year they played it on a, a record player and it didn't really do much. Um, and then uh, in uh, 2004, um, 2003, actually the off-season, um, Dr. Charles Steinberg started talking with uh, Boston Herald reporter Jeff Horrigan and started, they started wondering maybe there's something, you know, maybe they could recreate the song. And uh, Horrigan wrote the lyrics and they, um, the Dropkick Murphys were interested in doing it. And yeah, it was great. We interviewed, uh, you know, all the players involved, including, uh, you know, the dropkick Murphys, and it was it was really, and basically, uh, well, anyway, this, uh, <laughs> to make the long story short, they, they played it in the 04, and the very first time they played it was uh, in the game that, uh, um, where A-Rod was plunked, and then he went after, uh, I mean, then uh, Veritek, uh, you know, hit him, in A-Rod in the face in that very famous game, and the kind of, many people thought that was kind of the momentum turner of that season, and basically, every time they played it since, they've played it uh, in five games, that's it, um, in live in the ballpark, the Sox are 5-0, and all, and always went in dramatic fashion, and they've only played it in two years, in 04 and 07, the two years that they, they you know, won it all, won the World Series, and um, so, you know, definitely, you know, there are believers, especially in the Sox front office, there were a lot of people who were convinced that, that that the song had something to do with it. But even it, some of the players were convinced, and, and you know, like uh, you know, was saying to the dropkick, <laughs> to Murphy's, uh, when they, you know, like, say, hey, you're, you're our good luck charms. Um, and, you know, Ken Casey, the lead singer, vocalist, and bass player for the dropkicks definitely, you know, believed that, you know, he, he was one of the first people to predict that, the, you know, and he said it even in the, his liner notes that this song would bring the Sox to the series. So I don't know why they don't play it every year live. Yeah, well, I was going to
0: ask that. Why don't they just keep playing it live? If yeah, that's the I know. Case?
2: But yeah, yeah.
0: I guess so. It's, um, it's probably for the same reason they can't wear the thong every day.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: that's true. <laughs> too much of a good thing.
1: Exactly. If you you'll you'll lose the magic if you keep trying to squeeze it all out of it. Well, it was interesting too that uh, they they couldn't use the original lyrics, obviously because they, they don't make much sense uh, for baseball. And even the Royal Rooters didn't use the original lyrics; they made up their own. So, uh, John Hor- uh, Jeff Oregon had to write new lyrics, uh, for the new recording, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And basically he wrote, uh, lyrics that were about the, the original, um, Royal Rooters and them, them singing the song. So it's kind of like a, the song within the song. And, you know, <laughs> and he, he did a great job and, and, you know, I mean, obviously it's, a uh, you know, it's a popular song to this day. And, um, you know, <laughs> you know, beyond baseball fans. Absolutely.
1: And, uh, and of course, Dan, I know you know the the connection, the paranormal connection uh, with that song and and the paranormal in this region, Jeff Horrigan's brother being John Horrigan, who's a big supporter of the paranormal uh, here in Massachusetts and puts together the Mass Monster Mash every year.
2: Yeah, it's really cool, yeah.
1: Just one of those things, you know, it just shows that uh, all this stuff's connected somehow. So, uh, you know, Mickey, I guess, you know, if you wanted to, we could get somebody to write a song for the Yankees. I mean, they seem to be doing all right without
0: one. <laughs> uh, well, they play New York, New York at the end of every victory in the stadium. Yeah, but
1: that wasn't written for them.
0: Uh, it wasn't written for them, no. So Tuffy wasn't, well, I guess the V-Done version was written for them, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. I like to buy an LA version. But <laughs>
1: That's just because you're tired of having to hear the Sinatra version all the time when the Yankees
0: win. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I knew we'd work some smack talk in there somewhere.
0: I don't know, but all I heard of there is that the Yankees win all the time. That's my takeaway from that thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, one of the things that's uh, really interesting about Field of Screams, and, and I'm assuming that this had to do with when you said you, you were able to actually go to the World Baseball Classic and talk to some of these players, but so many of the international baseball stories, uh, ghosts associated with the game are not just an American phenomenon.
2: Yeah, it that was really cool. And, and, you know, I mean, I, it's kind of, you know, one of the fun things about writing this book is just you, you can you know you're writing in general you know as, as you know Tim is just you know you're always learning something new and you know it was great to I, I've been you know I've been writing on, on international baseball for many years but I didn't really know much about the superstitions and and started you know poking around I, we started my, my wife's Japanese so she kind of served as a translator but I basically over in Japan interviewed you know dozens of Japanese players got credentialed just like we did here in the states and. Mickey and I were also interviewing, you know, Japanese players here in the States too about, you know, their their ghost stories and superstitions. And it's just kind of really cool to um under, you know, to kinda of record these stories that, you know, their superstitions and their their ghost stories, which um you know, of course they have similar ghost stories, but they also they have a very different way of dealing with it and some of the stories are downright bizarre and you know, I mean and a lot of them are from like you know, places like Hiroshima and Okinawa, just like here in the States, they would be from Gettysburg. But, like, also just some baseball sites and ballparks and hotels and dorm, dormitories. So, um,
1: yeah, they, do, they definitely do. The, the Japanese culture do treat their ghosts differently. They're much more revered, uh, and they're seeing more of a, a, a spiritual connection with the past than being a, a scientific anomaly, as they're viewed here in the United States.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, it's it's kind of funny, but like, you know, you don't really see like a, you know, TV shows on the paranormal in Japan just because you know, it's, to them, it's like, uh, so what? We we see that we we know, it. we know, <laughs> we deal with it every day. You know, I mean, they they have the Obon holidays in August where they take home the spirits and lanterns of their ancestors, and you know, kind of just a strong belief that you know that uh, spirits are, are around, and you know, even in baseball, and especially in baseball, um. You know, there are so many rituals, and we recorded a lot of that for, for the book. You know, things like the simple things like they you always see salt in, in baseball. And you are doing other things too, like sumo wrestling and different things. And in Japanese society in general, sprinkled at doorways. And basically, the, the salt is both for purification and for keeping uh, evil spirits away. And the salt is often broken out in baseball uh, during slumps. And, you know, put, you see, you know, grounds crew like pouring it on the dug out steps and players touch it as they go up and you know to, you know on, the, on you know to take a you know to warm up and to hit um, and you know other, other rituals you know from you know the necklaces they wear to the you know wristbands uh, uh, to you know um, amulets they wear and, and other things that are in their lockers too uh,
1: Mickey did you notice uh, as you were interviewing players and, and managers and people associated with the game, were there any cultural lines? Did, did any certain players from certain cultures seem to be more willing to talk or less willing to talk about these things?
0: You know, I think I had that assumption a little bit going in because you always hear that Latino players, for instance, are more superstitious than um, other players. Mm-hmm. But I, don't, I can't say that I really found that to be true. Lots of players that are superstitious. I might, I might make the, the, uh, the stereotype that baseball players are more superstitious than other uh, athletes are. But, uh, you know, and and I asked that question specifically of certain people. I remember talking with uh, Bobby Valentine, who has, of course, had a career in the majors here and also managed in Japan. And I asked him specifically if he thought that uh, Japanese players or Latino players were more superstitious than American players. And he said he didn't think so at all. There's a cultural aspect to um, the the Japanese stories, like Dan was just talking about. Um, But... You really find these kinds of beliefs and these kinds of stories and um, all these sort of efforts to try to stay on the good side of, of whatever spirits are out there. You hear that from all different kinds of players. And when I think of the locker rooms that I've been in, I, I'm sure this is true for Dan, too, you can go up and down. I mean, literally in our early days, we didn't know. We'd sort of cold-calling people. We would just start walking down the row of lockers and ask people, do you have any stories about this kind of stuff? and you never know who was going to have one, but every locker room had plenty of people who either had something happen to them firsthand or they'd heard about a story from another guy that they knew or they'd heard it even third or fourth hand. Um, it was pretty rampant across all sort of demographic lines.
1: Is there any truth to the story that it's very bad to drink Jobu's wine?
0: <laughs> um, I wouldn't recommend it.
1: <laughs> I'm looking at my brother here in the studio. I don't think he got that one. It's very bad to drink Jobu's wine from uh, Major League, mm-hmm. Pedro Serrano.
0: I think that's where a lot of those, um, <laughs> some of those, uh, I'll call them stereotypes, come from. If you if you know, I'm thinking of that movie and also in Bull Durham, where there's a lot of superstitious mm-hmm. uh, players, and again, they seem to be play, playing up the Latino angle even more there.
1: And just superstitions in general, uh, in this area, coming from watching Nomar go through those histrionics every time he got up to the plate for so many years, I mean, that's just... Shows you right there. The I mean, even Ortiz. I mean, people, people uh, talk about his, you know, at bat ritual. But uh, I always thought that was kind of more to psych out the pitcher because when you see somebody spit on their hands and rub them together, they're expecting to do some dirty work there. So,
0: yeah. And yeah. some players, some players prefer that word you just used. They'll say they have rituals rather than say that they have superstitions. Now the ritual is such that if they don't do it every time, they get very panicked and. It can be things like you know never stepping on the foul lines, have to drive the same way to the ballpark every time, have to eat the same food um, before a game, or uh, step onto the field at exactly the same time. All those kinds of things that you hear about from various players that are fun stories for uh, for fans to follow.
2: Yeah, these things are ingrained. I mean, players talk, you know, say that their Little League coaches teach them these things, so it's not just uh, superstition. And Nomar himself, you know, like like Mickey said, he you know he called them rituals. He said it wasn't. Superstitious, that is kind of just think you know everything that he did had a purpose and you know was taught by his coaches and and worked. But you know he definitely looking at. I mean, every other player we talked to when we talked about superstition would. I mean, many players would say, "Oh, go talk to Nomar." So you know, it's all a matter of perspective.
1: One question I do want to ask that was in the chat room a little bit earlier is uh, a listener wanted to know if there are any umpire ghosts that are ever seen. Are there any phantom calls being made by uh, by somebody from the beyond?
2: Maybe this year after the Galarraga game. <laughs> um, you know, you got the no-hitter taken away from a perfect game, rather. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Mickey, have you heard any? Yeah, I
0: haven't heard anything like that. Um, you know, one of the interesting things we found is that the stories do come from, from everywhere. So we, uh, we've been talking about some of the players that we've talked to. They have a ton of stories. But we've also talked to some folks, front office folks, and certainly to a lot of fans anyone connected to the game has heard or experienced some of these kinds of stories umpires i will say this, are a little hard to get to to interview because they're in their own section of the park and they're very much um... you know shielded from the press at all times they have to keep their impartiality all that kind of stuff so I think that's probably why we haven't heard more stories from them, but I'm sure if we were to knock on those doors a little bit more, we would get a a lot of stuff from those guys as well.
1: Well, if there's a Volume 3 in the works, you can definitely contact Joe West because I think he runs his own website, joewest.com. He's the only umpire that thinks that he's bigger than the players, so I'm sure he'd be willing to give you a little bit of information. Now, one thing that I was – you know, it comes up briefly in the chapter on Tessie, uh, but I – I, I realize that this actually happens more than I, I thought about is the idea of these little mascots that they had in the early days of baseball and the little Rastus and Eddie Bennett and Charlie Foster. It seems like there's these been these people that are associated with organizations that are supposedly human good luck charms. Uh, but one that you didn't mention in the book, and I was a little surprised, Mahal Mahal didn't make it. Do you remember Mahal Mahal?
2: I uh, refresh my memory. Yeah.
1: (laughs) The little guy that used to hang out with Pedro Martinez? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah. we actually, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we we tried to get something on that. Pedro didn't really uh, open up on that. He's sitting
1: under the mango tree now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Pedro is a really weird story, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he originally, you know, Pedro, you know, at some point he was saying it was good luck, and then he kind of retracted that and, said, you know, kind of went back and forth, and there was tension between him and Pedro, you know, it's just kind of really weird stuff that went on. He he actually passed away a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah.
1: When I read that part in the chapter, it made me think. You know, Dr. Steinberg, being the marketing genius that he is, <laughs> I almost wondered if uh, he put the bug in Pedro's ear to bring in this human good luck charm.
2: Yeah, there were so many weird things that went on during the 04 season. I mean, Tessie just being in that story, just being a few of them, just like things that were. You know, you know, and the whole. You know, I mean, obviously the bullet. You know, the sign on. You know, on you know, it's a, um, on, uh, you know just that get where it was but it basically saying reverse the curse and you know the reverse the curse ice cream and all this stuff and it was just kind of a lot of you know it was just a lot of talk and a lot of build up on that so who knows what did what and you know it just got but it is fun you know and it's great to kind of just see the passion that you know obviously you know i grew up with as a red sox fan but you know and just basically you know recording you know seeing it kind looking at it a little bit objectively kind of like all the rituals that you know fans are doing
0: that's one of the nice things about these curse stories. I mean, obviously, any, any fan of a team that's said to be cursed um, isn't too happy to have that hanging over their heads. But they do come to offer an opportunity for fans to really sort of, um, in the absence of a championship, have something to, to, to think about, to talk about, and to even become very actively um, involved in trying to undo. So whenever you see a team like the Cubs, the Red Sox, whomever, that has a curse story, you find fans who are really engaged in trying to do what they can to turn that around somehow.
1: Yeah. It's, I guess if you can't, you can only blame the players so much. You can only blame management so much. And eventually it has to be something beyond that. So applying the curse idea to it, you know, it gives you another, another scapegoat for the problems.
0: Yeah. I think it's a, it's a sort of human compulsion to look for a cause and effect for things. And when you, can't find a cause for the effect, you know, a logical cause for the effect that you're seeing the Cubs haven't won a World Series in over 100 years now. Um you start to look outside logic for reasons to help explain it.
1: So one one last question here uh, about these ghosts and uh you know, Ted Williams was was revered in these parts and then all throughout baseball, the last 400 hitter and the way that he passed away Oh, well, what happened after he passed away? You know, there was all that drama, all that controversy with his son John Henry. Is there any spirit, any spirit stories associated with him, uh, based on what ended up happening to his remains?
2: Not that we've heard of. Yeah, we're you know we're still digging, so to speak. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, obviously that you know that was you know you know it's 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 sad for you know any Red Sox fan like just having the memory of him kind of. You know, and then, you know, that being tarnished by all the talk about a, a severed head and, you know, <laughs> you, know and, you know, talk of his resurre- resurrecting him and all that stuff. You know, just really weird, and a really weird family battle. Um, but, yeah, no, we haven't ha- actually heard it go so yet. I mean, but, you know, we did um, hear a lot. Actually, you know, we do write a lot about him, and you know, obviously in Haunted Baseball, you know, and feel to scream just, you know, because he is part of... You know, he's part of. You know, there are so many great stories out there about him, and they kind of mm-hmm. work their way into some of the chapters on Cooperstown and on, on the Red Sox and, you know, and so forth. So it's kind of nice to, <laughs> to to work him in somehow. But, you know, eventually the Splinter will probably work his way into <laughs> one of our books, too.
1: Well, we ran out of time here, but uh, we didn't really get to discuss Cooperstown, but there is a, a whole chapter on the ghost there as well. I mean, it seems like the, they're definitely hanging out at the Hall of Fame.
2: Yeah, the ghost of Cooperstown, yeah. <laughs>
0: It's not surprising if you, anyone who's been to a Hall of Fame knows when you walk through that great hall, it looks like a mausoleum. The, the plaques for all the players that are up there um, just sort of have that kind of a feel, and you feel like you're a little bit in the presence of um, all those great players. And so not surprisingly, the folks who work at the, um, at the hall report hearing odd things and strange things that go bump in the night. That's all in the, in the chapter in the book.
1: Well, I can tell you this much. Uh, with I'm sure there'll be more stories coming and and more volumes of uh, haunted baseball and field of screams coming forward and uh we'll keep an eye out down here on the cape league and pass along anything that that we hear about but uh guys thanks for joining us as always and and uh Dan hopefully we can see you on the 20th yeah thanks
2: Tim yeah all right it was fun being on and
1: you're welcome back anytime dan gordon and mickey bradley they are the authors of field of screams haunted tales from the baseball diamond the locker Room and beyond pick it up on their website haunted i'm sorry field of screams online.com and wherever you find books online that does it for this week's show we'll be back next week uh we're not sure who the guest is yet we're going to confer with content director chris balzano about that but we'll have uh, shows all throughout october I think there's a chance that next week we could be starting late. They still haven't announced what time that Red Sox game is going to be. Uh whether or not it's, you know, whether or not the importance of the game matters or if it's whatever else is going on, I'm sure Fox wants Yankees Red Sox in the afternoon if they can get it. You know, no matter what the situation is. So there's a good chance we'll be on at the regular time, but stay tuned to spookysouthcoast.com. We'll have all the information and updates there. Uh we'll also have the ghost of the South Coast page up and running by the end of the week as well. And uh, you can buy your tickets to Paranite 2010. Buy them right now. Why wait? There's very limited uh, tickets available, especially for the VIP package, so you want to make sure that you get them now, get them early. And I'm just looking forward to a whole month of October shows. We've got some great stuff planned, some uh, great Halloween-themed programs, some great programs that will send a little bit of a chill down your spine, so you want to stay tuned here each and every Saturday night. And, of course, if you've missed any of the programs, just go to the archives on SpookySouthCoast.com or sign up through iTunes or Zoom Marketplace or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you still can't get them, then just call the studio. Matt Costa will burn you a CD, drive it to your house, and sit there and wait till you're done with it so we can take it back home with him. We won't send Moniz out there because he's in no state. (laughs) All right. So thank you to Dan and Mickey for joining us. And thank you for Jeff Belanger for calling in and for whatever you did to Moniz. And until next week, from Matt Costa, from Matt Moniz, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular.
0: Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to.